If you have a Bible, please turn to Micah chapter 4, our second of the two Old Testament readings. And while you're turning there, let me just remind you, this is the fifth sermon in a series called Money and the Kingdom of God. It's a series of sermons where we're learning from Scripture how to honor Jesus in how we work and earn and spend and save, how we use our money. Micah chapter 4, this um, famous passage of Scripture where God gives us this remarkable vision of the new heavens and the new earth, the, the way things will be forever. It shall come to pass in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be lifted up above the hills and people will flow to it and many nations will come and say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. Verse 3, he will judge between many peoples, decide for strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords in the plowshares and their spears in the pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, that is wonderful, isn't it? That in the new heavens and the new earth, when God judges the nations, people will melt down their weapons and turn them into tools for work, for gardening. One of the many things that our community has learned from the Mennonites among us is that our approach to war and violence on this side of the return of Christ has to be shaped by its absence after the return of Christ. Now with that in mind, look at verse four. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. In this vision of life in the new creation, not only is there an end to violence, there's an end to poverty. That's what it means. Each man sitting under his own vine and fig tree means he's got a vine and fig tree. So in verse 3, we see the end of war. And in verse 4, we see the end of violence. In the new heavens, in the new earth, in the new creation, there will be an economy in which every person is secure and safe from slipping into poverty. In God's kingdom, in his kingdom to come, there will be no fear of violence and right next to it, no fear of poverty. The end of violence will occur because weapons will be turned into tools for work and because people will stop learning war. Now, how is God going to invite, if, if that's the way he's going to end violence, the removal of the weapons and the removal of learning the war, how does he end poverty? The way he ends poverty is by giving every person a stake in the production side of the economy. Now, don't you long for that? Don't you long to live in a place where there is no war, no violence? Don't you want that? Don't you wish that you could take away what's happening in Russia and Ukraine right now? 
I mean, if, if you could, I mean, what would you not give for that, right? And don't you in the same way long for an end to poverty? You see, the stuff of our deepest desires was put there by God. And he's going to answer those desires. The way poverty will be erased is that every person will have access to the factors of production. The stuff that makes stuff in the economy. That's what it means to say every man under his vine, under his fig tree, no longer afraid. No longer afraid of what? Not just war. No longer afraid that he's going to lose his place in the economy. No longer afraid that he's going to lose his ability to produce in the new creation, when God's kingdom is fully established, each person will have an economic stake, an economic place to stand, an economic portion to steward. Now, those of us who are Christians, we know that ultimately there's no security, economic or otherwise, apart from God. But what we see here is that Christian or not, God has designed humans to experience security in this world by having a secure economic stake in the world. And that's a fundamental principle to economics in the kingdom of God. That's fundamental when you read the Bible and you're looking in it for its economic wisdom. Now, how does God backfill that into the way of living this side of his return. Well, that's our other Old Testament passage. Turn to Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25. And let's start with a verse right in the middle of the chapter. Verse 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. For the land is mine. God's the one talking here. God says, I own the land. You are strangers and you are sojourners. I'm the landowner. So God, the creator, is a king. And he's a king that owns all of the land of Israel. But unlike the other would-be God, Pharaoh, that Israel had been slaves under, Yahweh is different than Pharaoh. Pharaoh owned all the land. Yahweh owns all the land. Pharaoh was greedy with his land. Yahweh is generous with his land. He generously gives every family in Israel their own plot. Now, there's no transfer of title deed, right? God is the king. He owns the land. So they don't get the title deed. They don't own it. But he gives every family their own plot in the promised land. So think about how remarkable this would have been to the Israelites after their never-ending harsh slavery in Egypt. God brings them to a promised land, and God who owns the land gives every household a piece of land. Every family has a socioeconomic place to stand and a portion to steward. But you know how life is. Land can be lost. The gift of the land can be lost. So alongside the gift of the land that God gives to Israel, when they moved into the promised land, he gave them a second gift. Every 50 years, a reset. Look at verse 10, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10. You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land 
to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. Every 50 years, a giant economic bailout for everybody. Everybody gets a reset. So every 50 years, God requires Israel to push this economic tool they've got, this reset button. And this protects and per, 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 perpetuates. There it is. Thank you for your patience. It, it protects and perpetuates Yahweh's land gift, ensuring that if someone lost the land, they get it back. Now, you know how people lost land because they lost it the same way people now lose land. Through misfortune, famine, through mistakes. If a person's land was lost because of famine, we saw several weeks ago that the family would continue to live because they had access to gleaning because God didn't let the farmers take every piece of profit off their land. But now we see that God not only gives them a way to make it in the meantime, he gives them a way to get back to their land. Now, there were some people they were straight up Proverbs 31 kind of people. They were diligent. They were like that woman getting up before light, staying up while it was still dark, working hard. Then there are other people that are like some other folks in Proverbs, right? Some of these people in Proverbs who drink up their money and live a life of sloth. And they too, their descendants get a reset. So whether it's through natural tragedies or bad decisions, whether it's through laziness or injustice, however the land was lost, every 50 years, grace, divine grace, renewed and reshaped the economy. Each household received afresh the creational gift that provides the literal ground for all economic life in that agrarian society. Now remember, practically everyone in Israel was a farmer. A farmer's survival depended on being able to control their land for farming. Without access to farmable land, a family at that time would literally have no place to stand, economically or socially. If a person lost their land, they couldn't get a decent job back then, waiting tables or working in IT. That didn't exist. A landless peasant got sucked into an oppressive sharecropping cycle, something similar to what people faced in the American South in the early 20th century. Hold your finger there in Leviticus 25 and turn to Job, Job chapter 24. This is right before the book of Psalms. Job chapter 24. Notice what life was like for a landless person in ancient Israel. Job chapter, chapter 24, verse 4. They thrust the poor off the road. The poor of the earth all hide themselves. Behold, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out to their toil, seeking game. The wasteland yields food for their children. They gather their fodder in the field, and they glean the vineyard of the wicked man. They lie all night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. They're wet with the rain of the mountains and cling to the rock for lack of shelter. 
There are those who snatch the fatherless child from the breast and they take a pledge against the poor. They go about naked without clothing, hungry. They carry the sheaves among the olive rows of the wicked. They make oil. They tread the wine presses, but suffer thirst from out of the city. The dying groan and the soul of the wounded cries for help. That was the plight of the person who lost their land. See, poverty in the ancient world was brutal. If you wanted to avoid it, land was everything. We live in a knowledge economy. They lived in a land economy. Now remember Micah chapter 4, verse 4, this beautiful vision of the new creation. Remember what we see there, a fundamental economic principle that God teaches this world is that God designed humans to experience security in his world through having an economic stake in the neighborhood. And that means access to the factors of production, the stuff that makes stuff. Now, going back to Leviticus chapter 25, God gives ancient Israel this weird economic button that's really not that weird we've seen it recently in the last in our lifetime we've seen a massive economic reset for certain sectors of society now God provided this as a nationwide economic tool that he required to happen every 50 years he gave them this series of laws that prevented any Israelite family from being permanently disenfranchised from the family farm. So if you worked hard, saved, acquired access to new farms and fields and essentially spent 49 years being all Proverbs 31, while I spent the same amount of time getting drunk, gambling, losing my land in the process, when the Jubilee trumpet sounded Those ancestral lands of mine that you acquired through thrift and hard work returned to my children. Every Israelite family got a fresh start. And so every family in the community whose members were willing to work, they could escape multi-generational poverty. People lived around 40 years at this time. So these were children, children's children. They were given a chance to ensure that every family would once again have a stake in the factors of production. And so nobody had to fear permanent poverty. Now, this doesn't fit our typical approaches today. After all, on the one hand, in contrast to a typically conservative approach to economics today, the Jubilee Law restricted the invisible hand of the market and it undermined the effectiveness of economic incentives by restricting the sale of the land for perpetuity and placing limits on people's ability to capitalize on investments. This is a very different move than conservative economic approaches today. But on the other hand, it's also different to typical liberal approaches to economics today. The Jubilee Law doesn't create equity by redistributing wealth. 
It creates equity, not through taxing excess wealth. It doesn't use that mechanism. It creates equity by restoring the factors of production to their original equitable starting point. And the fact that this only happened every 50 years or so meant that individuals would suffer from bad decisions for decades. Now, we're not Middle Eastern farmers in a Bronze Age agrarian society. There are serious differences between our economy and, and our economic possibilities today and the economy in Leviticus chapter 25. But that does not mean we can take this page out of our Bible. Our job is to learn to say, okay, that's God's application of his economic wisdom. How can we learn to think creatively from that and, and look at our economy today and our use of money today and our treatment of people today? What will it mean for our church to gather around these passages, Micah 4, Leviticus 25, and others like them, and sincerely pray for God to give us an imagination to live our lives out of this story and, and to resist the hyper-individualistic story of scarcity and deficit and fear that are the dark side of the American dream. We need to creatively imagine how to bend our economic lives toward the disenfranchised. We've got to ask tough questions about what it means for the marginalized to be re-enfranchised in our communities, to be re-empowered, to steward their lives, their gifts, and their abilities, to be restored to economic standing by being restored to the factors of production. And to do this, our first task is to learn the difficult history of economic disenfranchisement in America and in Harrisonburg. Now, some of you might be thinking, what in the world with this economics lecture? I'd rather some good old-fashioned preaching on justification or some other safe theology that lets me carry on with the details of my life without fully integrating. But remember, remember where we started this whole series. God has a kingdom and every kingdom has an economics. And just because we've not practiced reading the Bible economically doesn't mean we can continue to read the Bible as if economics doesn't matter. So yeah, this is hard stuff, but we've got to do a lot of hard stuff when it comes to being Christians today. So let's think about how groups of people, one particular group in America, has suffered economic disenfranchisement. They got kicked out of the means of production. Let's think about the African-American community and how it stands when we look at it economically through the lens of the king's economy. And to begin with, we've got to come to grips with the fact that the entire slave system, one of its evils, of, of many evils, one of its evils was that it systematically deprived African Americans of the rewards of their labor. They labored, the owner got the reward. To say nothing of depriving them of the ability to get wealth. And while the Civil War ended slavery, it did not touch the economic disenfranchisement. 
It didn't keep its promise for 40 acres and a mule. And since the end of the Civil War, four great sins have continued to be committed against the African-American community that the Jubilee Laws stand in judgment of. First, African-Americans were excluded from the Homestead Act of 1862. Basically, it went like this. Our government deployed a policy where pioneers could purchase 160 acres of public land in the western U.S. for a small fee after living on it for five years. Now, here's the devastating issue. One quarter of the current U.S. population, age 25 and older, can trace significant portions of their current assets back to that. But no African-Americans can. They were not allowed to participate in this massive federal government wealth creation initiative. And the impact of that, personally, that is a key issue why I own my house. Because my great-grandfather's wealth that came from that got not super wealthy, but it got enough in a key moment in my life. I was able to stake a claim in the housing market. And I'm sure that many of us could tell the same story, but if you're an African-American, you can't tell that story. Second, from the 1930s to the 1960s, African-Americans were shut out of the single greatest wealth-building initiative our government ever enacted, FHA-backed mortgages. Through redlining, African-Americans were blocked out of it. Third, because of their lack of access to FHA-backed mortgages, African-Americans were exposed to vicious predatory lenders. What happened is that when an African-American couldn't get a legitimate mortgage because of redlining, the only option was to purchase home on contract. And if you don't know the technical meaning of the word contract, that is a gift. Because this was a way of combining all the disadvantages of renting with all the responsibilities of owning and none of the benefits of either. either. Now, this, this has been going on since then. As recently as 2000, 2013, Wells Fargo and Bank Corp South were both practicing race-based predatory lending in Memphis, Tennessee. Fourth, and then I'll get out of the economics lessons. In 1950s and the 1960s, racist government housing policies destroyed black homes and communities in the name of something that they ironically called urban, anybody know? Renewal. Here's how it happened on this land. 1958, Harrisonburg, Virginia, our city developed Project R4 that targeted 28 acres that lay between Main Street, Gay Street, Rock Street, and Johnson Street. And the city took photos of the buildings in that area that they could be appraised, and their owners were reimbursed and forced to move out. It was an early lesson in the city's use of eminent domain laws. Homes were not the only structures bulldozed and burned. The Jewish synagogue was, African-American churches and businesses Residents were moved in some of the city's first housing projects, and much of the land turned into the giant parking lot in front of Roses and the giant parking lot in front of the county office building. We bulldozed down houses and did these things. 
All told, in the name of getting rid of urban blight, our city redeveloped 40 acres and relocated 200 families. Now, we've got to learn to read the Old Testament and imagine our world through the lens and think about the own places where we lived. What happened here 50 years ago still matters. 135 years after slavery ended, black Americans have gained have gained ground, they have gained 0.5% more income compared to the wealth of America than they had at the end of slavery. The African-American community in America has 0.5% more of the total wealth in the U.S. than they held at the end of the Civil War. Today, black families hold one-tenth of the net worth of white families. Because of these things, a large part of it. We live in a country that has refused to, to use God's jubilary economy of grace. We stand instead under Isaiah's indictment that says, the plunder of the poor is in your homes. When you wake up, one generation down, two generations down, three generations down, and the plunder of the poor has given you a leg up, God takes note of that. So what do we do with all of this? Two things. Repent and repair. Number one, repent. God requires people to repent of their ancestors' sins. That's a big part of the Bible. Israel's year of jubilee began one on the day of atonement. It was the trumpet sounded on the day of atonement. In other words, we're going to start this national reset with national repentance. We can only enter God's joyful, gracious economy of gift through the doorway of repentance for our sins and the sins of our ancestors. Second, we repair. In the Bible, repentance requires repair because sin breaks, sin ruptures. Sin, sin interferes. So God's jubilary economy invites us to consider what does it mean to repair the present economic reality that's produced by lots of decisions made long before we were ever on the scene. We have to commit ourselves to costly sacrificial action in pursuit of economic justice. We have to bend our lives toward the disenfranchised. In other words, in the words of Jesus of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 verse 8, we have to bear fruit in keeping with our repentance. Now, there's some really good news here. All over America and all over the world, God's people, all over this church, you are finding creative and imaginative ways to help people gain access to the modern day equivalent of, in Leviticus, the family farm. For example... We live in a knowledge economy. How many of you have taken your profits and contributed them to opening doorways to education? That, that's, that's what this move is. When in a knowledge economy, when we help our neighbors, when we help the disenfranchised gain the kind of education that serves as a fertile field for economic life in today's society, that is one of the ways that we're acting like the Jubilee Laws. 
companies in our church and friends of our church. And I'm hearing these stories from businessmen who are offering employees a stake in the ownership of their business. Businessmen and women in our church are creatively imagining and finding ways and practicing ways of welcoming refugees and people with disabilities and people with criminal records and others into their workforce. And all of these are ways that some businesses are putting into practice this fundamental principle of God's economic wisdom. God designed humans to experience security in this world when they have an economic stake in the neighborhood. And that means having access to the factors of production. Now, one of the really cool things that's happening in America today along these lines and in our community is the idea of impact investing. This is when you give an investment and you accept a lower rate of return than you could get in a kind of free market scenario. You, you take a lower rate of return and you take that in exchange for a higher impact. That's not charity. It's not just good business. It's kind of a third space. Kiva, family and friends, certificates of deposits, donor advised funds, individual development account programs. These are all exciting ways that people are learning to bend economics toward the disenfranchised in the way the Bible teaches us. Now, like I said earlier, we live in a knowledge economy. In a fundamental way, we can help the disenfranchised is opening access to education. So there's someone in our church who's deeply committed to ESL and wanting to start some more programs. And all of those things in our city, all of those ESL moves, they're working out of this kind of vision. Many Christians are beginning to see teaching is an impact investment. You're getting a lower rate of return, but you're... Exchanging that easier life for a much higher impact. What about our church? As our church moves forward, we've got to decide, are we going to use our real estate and our financial holdings in a jubilee kind of way? Will we invest in our neighborhood and our neighbors along the lines promoted by John Perkins and the Christian Community Development Association? Will we become a community in which the world glimpses a modern-day creative, imaginary use of the Jubilee approach? What about you and your own family? Will you read Leviticus 25 and do the hard work to think creatively out of an agrarian Bronze Age, Middle Eastern society into what would this look like for me here today? Can you invest some of your money for social impact? Can you get involved with education? Can you volunteer at Spotswood Elementary? Now, look, you, you come to a passage like Leviticus 25 and Micah 4 and you want it all to just be either irrelevant or so far in the future that we just kind of clunk along. And this is overwhelming. Where in the world can we find the energy and the commitment to do the hard work to get out of Leviticus 25 into our world today? Well, the answer in Leviticus was simple. The energy and commitment come from God. All economic life in Israel flowed out of the fact that they were slaves. God delivered them to himself, gave them land for the life of the world. 
this sheer act of grace was the big bang that spun their entire economy into existence. Grace was the economic big bang. All of their economic life flowed out of the original gift of God. We owe our lives to God's grace. And the only way that God's grace can be received is if you receive it and let it transform you. If you don't let God's grace transform you, you aren't receiving God's grace. It's not, it is unconditional. It's not based on anything you do, but it's not unconditionable. It will change you. If you receive God's grace into your life, it transforms you and you enter into the endless circulation of grace. For Christians, the good news of God's kingdom isn't that we escape the responsibility of repenting and recovering from intergenerational sins. The good news is that we've been forgiven for failing in this task. The good news is that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to step into this task. And we can look forward to the day when the king will return and finish it. And that's good news. Let's pray.